What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wadham. I'm Rachel Wadham, and welcome to Worlds Awaiting, helping children and parents explore the world of literacy. Today, we'll be exploring the worlds of young theater, grim tales, and decoding words. Our first guest is theater educator Julia Ashworth, and we'll discuss theater for young audiences. Next, we'll talk with the author Adam Gitowitz about his book series, A Tale Dark and Grim. Finally, we'll chat with Kathleen Brown about recognizing words. Before we leave you, I'll step around the librarian's table with librarians from around Utah to talk about children, books, and life at the library. Along with our interviews, we'll have a book review of When You Reach Me and discover a few books librarians love to read. But before all that, let's take a glimpse into my world. Rachel's One of my favorite authors for children, Lloyd Alexander, believed that for young people, literature is a dress rehearsal for life. This is a common thought for authors, and even for teachers, parents, and librarians. As adults, we can see that through books, young people are given time to audition aspects of their world. As they read, they encounter diverse situations that allow them to practice new values and ways of dealing with problems. Literature guides children through the numerous possible attitudes a person can have towards life. Books show them an infinite variety of values, emotions, and lifestyles. Then these same books also help young people select from this rich palette those portions which are correct for themselves and the society around them. One item of critical importance to children on this journey of discovery is that it is done in a non-threatening environment. The perils and evils in books are not overly harmful or overwhelming, and they are easily vanquished by simply closing the pages. One of my favorite quotes paraphrased from an idea by author G.K. Chesterton by another great author, Neil Gaiman, notes, Fairy tales are more than true, not because they tell us dragons exist, but because they tell us dragons can be beaten. This quote captures for me just how powerful stories can be in giving ways for us to deal with life. Many adults may be shocked or even outraged at the numerous unbounded worlds available to young people in books. This is especially true when we propose that children use books to test all aspects of their world. We are all inclined to protect children from the harsh realities of the world. In doing this, we also try to censor the things young people read with the hopes of keeping them innocent. This certainly is a noble endeavor, but might I suggest there is some caution needed. Since young people truly desire to know and experience many things, it is important that we not make the mistake of only showing them the simple, easy, and light portions of the world. We must allow them to discover the hard things as well as the good so that they may have an opportunity to formulate their own values and find solutions to problems by themselves. As adults, we must guide children, but not manipulate them. It is the children who are allowed to make mistakes who are the most fortunate. 
For we see here at Rachel's World, it is only through the gentle, non-manipulative guiding that great books can provide that young people will be able to acquire the keys to their future. Rachel's World. Going to the theater to see a live production can be a rich and fulfilling experience. There is so much thought and effort that goes into a single production from sets, costumes, and acting. Today, I have in the studio Julia Ashworth, a theater education professor here at BYU who specializes in theater for young audiences. Welcome, Julia. Well, thank you. I'm super excited to be here. (laughs) I am super excited to have you here because one of those things that I think that's been really a great thing, particularly recently, is we've seen a lot of dramatic productions that are targeted just to kids. Right. And this hasn't been something that's been, you know, a standard, at least in my experience in in the field. And I'm so, so excited to see it. But talk a little bit to help us kind of understand this. What is different between a production that would be like, for adults or like a whole family production and a production that you're just focusing on children. What are the differences between those? Yeah, that's a great question. So let me talk globally yes, for just a minute. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the, the field globally is really considered, um, it's called Theater for Young Audiences or TYA for short. And that's a distinction that's come in the past couple of decades from children's theater. So there's a couple of things to think about. Young audiences could really be up to 21 or even 25 years old. So young being, A wide range. Young right. means a large range. Poten- <laughs> yes, it could potentially mean that. We don't have a lot of theater for teens in this country, but other countries do that. We primarily, when we think about theater for young audiences in the States, we primarily think about theater for children children's theater. So more like elementary school age? Yeah, okay. up until about 12, I would say, is is that kind of targeted age. So um, if you have a professional children's theater or theater for young audience company, like one of the biggest ones and best ones in our country is Seattle Children's Theater, uh, the majority of the work you're going to do is targeted towards children between Maybe as young as six and twelve. So that's a pretty small window. It's a pretty small window, yeah. Um, but because you're a professional company and people are coming to your facilities, you want to target to families because parents are coming with their children. So we have a touring TYA show here at BYU, a touring TYA company, I should say, that's actually existed in one iteration or another for over forty years. Um, but we have in the last 10 years since I've been here, we've been trying to promote and market it even more broadly and, and, and wider. And the, the touring shows, we have two shows a year and they tour to elementary schools. So our primary targeted audiences are not integrated audiences with adults, their parents and their children. It's primarily children. However, we also perform those shows on campus, and there obviously are some adults in the schools, but it is unique that way because we're able to think more um, developmentally about a really narrow range of children. And while we tour to elementary schools, oftentimes we ask them only to invite, for instance, the kindergarten grades up through second or third grade to our production. Again, an even narrower, smaller group of people. Or with all of our adaptations of Shakespeare plays, we usually only perform for the older grades, fourth, fifth, and sixth. 
Now that that is something that's really interesting to me is that you adapt plays because I think that that's a wonderful way to introduce children, particularly of that age group, to some classic right. dramatic things that we would consider, but at a level and at a developmental way that is really appropriate for them. Because particularly that 6 to 12, I think there would be some developmental issues you'd have to do, like, you know, ability to sit still for a long right. period of time. Yes. And even particularly with Shakespeare, things like theme that might be a little older than the kinds of things all you sorts want. Of mature Lang- themes. Yeah, <laughs> language and all that kind of yes. stuff. So how how do you how do you do all that. Uh, it very seems carefully. So complicated. <laughs> it is it is really it's much more complicated every time we adapt to Shakespeare yeah. play. In the fall, we call those productions our contemporary productions. And those are usually contemporary scripts that were originally written for young audiences and usually for children. So aged. there are there are playwrights that are writing yes. just for that audience. Just like yes. they would write a children's book, they're writing a children's play. Absolutely. And a lot of those are adaptations of famous children's books. Because that sells. That's yeah. Well, and they're great connections, and they're yeah. great stories. So. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. They're told are great yes. stories. Yeah. Yes, yeah. obviously. Yeah. Usually, yeah. usually that's the case yeah. when it's a yeah. well-known, award-winning book. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so, but the Shakespeare adaptations are very challenging, and we have two challenges. One is to take, you know, Shakespeare just wrote and wrote and wrote, and yeah. take these three, four-hour plays that no one does. Yeah, no, one, no does, one does the full play. No yeah. one yeah. rarely does that anymore. Um, and whittle it down to 45, 50 minutes. So that in and of itself is a massive challenge. Yeah. I've done it myself. It is massively challenging. Um, but then you're also adapting it for these young learners. And so you want to pull out themes that are more relevant to their lives. You want to be really careful about language. You want to honor Shakespeare's language, but also be careful about language. And then once the script exists, you need to create two versions of the play because you have the one on paper, but you need to create an equally telling version visually. Oh, so the young audience members follow, can follow both and it helps them. It helps them learn the language at the same time because they've got two versions of the story. So talk more about that visual aspect, particularly when mounting a production that's for this audience, because I find that really interesting that most of the plays I've seen for young audiences tend to be more visually dynamic than I would think some things. Because I've seen some plays on Broadway and I've seen some plays, you know, even some Shakespeare plays, very sparse sets, limited costume changes. You know, it, it's, It's all kind of in the same space. But with Plays for Children, we tend to see more richer costumes, more richer scene changes. So how does that work? Uh, well, that works. Th- that can be complicated, actually. Yeah, I know. I know. I love this. This is so complicated. It's so uh, cool. Uh, and that's just frankly true. Um the younger your target audience is, the more complicated your process is potentially going to be. Not because they have any less intelligence, yeah. as we know, obviously. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. But they have so much less experience mm-hmm. that they they need a little more guidance through that process. Yeah. Um, and so sometimes in Young Company here at BYU, we talk about the young audience members as being just like the most intelligent aliens from another universe. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> 
who also don't see or hear very well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and so really honoring who they are and where they are, yeah. but then finding ways to guide them through that process. Yeah. So you'll, you'll, you'll add a lot of visual storytelling that wasn't there in the Shakespeare script as well. That happens in your contemporary TYA scripts, yeah. as I call them, as too. But um, with the Shakespeare, you have to do extra work. Extra, yeah. Extra work. Yeah. And it's worthwhile. So many of those students on the tour in those schools, it is their first time seeing a live theater production. That's what I was going to say. I think a lot of things, for a lot of these kids, it is their first time seeing live theater. Absolutely. And, and that comes with its own challenges, right? Because you have to experience, you know, what is theater etiquette and how how do we interact with the stage and you know what right. what do we do as an audience member so you're even kind of teaching some of that too, yes that's right? true yeah so we always have a test audience or two before we go on tour and open on campus with our show of young people if adults came and sat in our audience as a test audience a dress rehearsal or whatever you want to call it they would politely sit there and watch the show. <laughs> show yeah, because adults were trained. <laughs> if children are bored, you know it. Oh. <laughs> they, yeah. Even if they're polite, yeah. they, they really start to move and fidget. Yeah. And they might start to run around yeah. if they're young enough and talk. And that is a good litmus test for us. Yeah. Oh, we're not doing our job and keeping them engaged. Yeah. And w- we don't do super young shows very often, but we love doing them. Um, be, uh I'm not sure why we don't. There aren't as many scripts for that age. Yeah. And it's um, a harder age. It is a harder age. Because <laughs> they have less attention spans. <laughs> but it, the challenges yeah. of that are really fun. Yeah. And you have to pull out every innovative theater trick that you've ever been exposed to. So it's some of the most nuanced, innovative type of theater production out there. Oh, I could not agree more. I mean, I have, like I said, I've seen plays all over the world and in all kinds of contexts. And some of the best have been young theater Is plays. That interesting? Be- yeah, because they really, and again, I, I say the same thing about children's literature, right? Some people look down on it because it's for kids. But in all honesty, it's harder to write for kids yes. than it is for adults. I mean, adult writers can get away with anything, right. but writers for kids can't. And the same is, same seems to be true of children's theater, right? right. You, you can't get away with anything. <laughs> yeah, every step has to be contextualized. Right. Same yeah. with the children's mm-hmm. literature. Yeah. yeah. It just makes it. So it's so. a beautiful art form that way. I right? love it. Well, thank you so much for exposing this art form to us. And please, My I pleasure. run out there. <laughs> yeah, I know. Run out there. And I'm, there's lots of young theater companies all over the United States. So Absolutely. just look in your community and see what things are available because there might be something right close by to you. One of these wonderful companies that might be doing Shakespeare or some other beautiful contemporary play for kids. So check it out and maybe have this experience with your kids at home. Thanks. Thank you. (laughs) Julia Ashworth is a theater education professor at BYU. Next, it's story time with Savannah Higgins reviewing the book When You Reach Me by Rebecca Stead. This book follows the story of Miranda, a sixth grader living in a slightly grubby New York City apartment with her single mother. Everything in her life seems pretty normal. That is, until it doesn't. Soon Miranda begins receiving these mysterious notes from an unknown person that seems to know strange details about her life. The notes also appear in random places, like inside her copy of her favorite book, A Wrinkle in Time, or even inside her apartment. Miranda soon realizes that these notes are connected to big events in her life, such as the breakdown of her friendship with her lifelong best friend Sal, and her mother's acceptance to be a contestant on the TV game show, The $20,000 Pyramid. What's more, 
the author of these notes seems to know things about Miranda's life before she ever even experiences them. Miranda now has to figure out what these notes mean and what their author wants from her. One day, on the way home from school, there's a bad car accident. This huge event is what finally pushes Miranda to start putting together all the pieces, and she begins to realize that her normal life is perhaps not so normal after all. The story is told from Miranda's point of view. Miranda is an engaging storyteller, and the first-person point of view really helps us to see her unique perspective. We get a front-row seat to her thoughts as she tries to figure out what all these notes mean. In order to tell her story, Miranda jumps between current events and the events that happened earlier that year. While this timeline jumping keeps the plot moving in an engagingly fast-paced way, it can be a bit confusing to follow if you're not really paying attention. This novel also reflects the complexities of adolescent friendships. Miranda's struggle to navigate best friends and social relationships brings a deep relatability and reality to this book. Readers of all ages can connect with Miranda's desire to understand and communicate with others, something that doesn't always play out the way she wants. As she gets to know new people, we experience with her how hard it can be to learn the mysteries of our peers. This provides a unique way of introducing new characters because we as the audience don't get to know the whole story. We only know as much as Miranda knows, leaving certain people shrouded in mystery as she strives to interact with them. Miranda comes to realize that friendships take work from all parties involved, a valuable lesson that ultimately helps her to improve herself and her relationships with others. Then we come to Miranda's favorite book, A Wrinkle in Time, which I've actually never read before. If you haven't either, don't worry. Miranda kindly explains enough about it to help those of us less familiar with the novel to understand what she's talking about. What I will say is that because of the plot of A Wrinkle in Time, Miranda ends up having some pretty complex discussions about the nature of time and the possibility of time travel. I have very little experience with theories about time travel, but this book explains them in a pretty precise and clear way. I found myself right alongside Miranda in trying to expand my mind to comprehend these new views. These ideas will likely push your mind a little bit, but not so much that you can't go on. In fact, with all the grounding and reality that we get from the authenticity of the character relationships in the setting, I would consider this a science fiction book for people who aren't that comfortable with science fiction. I fell in love with this book. I fell in love with Miranda and her mom and her friends. I fell in love with her storytelling. I fell in love with the mystery she encountered and the chances she took. This book finds a way to present complex theories and new ideas in a completely relatable world. I would recommend this book to anyone who wants to read an engaging, emotional, and thought-provoking story. And I hope that should you choose to read it, you will love it as much as I do. When we think of fairy tales, they often end with they lived happily ever after. But many of our classic tales have a much darker and violent origin. It's not often that modern adaptations of these fairy tales include those darker elements. We're on the phone with author Adam Gitowitz to talk about a few of his books that incorporate such grim tales. Welcome, Adam. Hi, thank you. Adam, I would love to introduce our listening audience today to two of your series. Um, The first one is A Tale Dark and Grim, and then your newest series, The Unicorn Rescue Society. These books are so delightful. They take a, a fantasy twist and add lots of humor to traditional 
tropes and tales and help us see fantasy in a, in a very unique way. So to start out, maybe tell us a little bit about each of these each of these series. Well, they're pretty different. Um, a Tale Dark and Grim and its companion novels, um, In a Glass Grimly and The Grim Conclusion, um, are, um, I take the original Grim fairy tales, which uh, your listeners probably know are not the cute and sweet fairy tales that we usually tell to children. Um, they can be uh, quite dark, um, often scary, um, brutal and bloody, and really delicious. Um, and so I, and I tell them... Um, uh, Faithfully, I weave together different grim fairy tales into one big story. So in my first book, the two main characters are Hansel and Gretel, um, but the stories are Hansel and Gretel and a story called Faithful Johannes, um, brother and sister, a bunch of lesser known grim fairy tales that Hansel and Gretel, their life experiences are, are retold by each of those stories. And it is scary, but it is also funny. So I have a narrator um, who's really just me interrupting the story and saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I forgot to warn you that that guy was going to get his head cut off. Don't worry, it'll be put back on again. He's fine. Um, and so I try to both um, uh, raise the tension and then relieve the tension with humor. So that's A Tale Dark and Grim. And what about Unicorn Rescue Society? How is it I different? Wasn't, I couldn't remember if you'd asked me to talk no, about yes, that No, yes, so I, I, I would love to hear about it. So in the Unicorn Rescue Society is my new series. Um, it came out, uh, the first book came out in April. Um, the next one will come out in July. This is for slightly younger kids. A Tale Dark and Grim, I would say, is fourth grade and up, and they have to be brave kids. The Unicorn Rescue Society, um, I would say, is sort of second grade and up, and it is um, a fun adventure series about two kids, a boy named Elliot and a girl named Uchenna. Um, and in the first book, they go on a field trip led by uh, the weirdest teacher at their school, Professor Fauna, um, who's kind of a cross for the adults out there, a cross between Doc Brown from Back to the Future and the most interesting man in the world from the Dos Equis commercials. If you just combine those two people, that's Professor Fauna. Great and, way to describe it. <laughs> and when they're out in the Pine Barrens of New Jersey on their field trip, um, they come across a Jersey Devil. Um, I don't know if all the listeners are familiar with Jersey Devil. That is a creature from New Jersey mythology, um, probably was first reported in the mid middle 1800s before in, even the United States existed um, as a creature that kind of looked like a deer, but with wings um, that would uh, haunt the forests of New Jersey, southern New Jersey. So these kids come across a young Jersey devil who turns out to be blue and adorable um, and won't leave them alone and follows them home. Um, and they eventually realize that Professor Fauna is the founder of a secret society called the Unicorn Rescue Society. And its mission is to rescue and save the mythical creatures of the world from danger. Um, and so each book, um, the children and Professor Fauna and Jersey, the Jersey Devil, go to a different culture, um, a different uh, location. They learn about that culture and the mythology, um, and then they use what they've learned to help those people keep a mythical creature safe from danger. One of the really exciting things I'd like to add about that series is after the first two books, I'm going to be co-writing the books with authors from the cultures that I'm writing about. So in book three, they're going to rescue Sasquatch on Muckleshoot territory, a Native American tribe outside of Seattle. I'm co-writing that with Joseph Bruchak, the legendary um, Native American children's book author. Um, and uh, book four, book five, book six, will all be with authors, amazing authors, well-known authors from the cultures where the Unicorn Rescue Society is visiting. 
That is so exciting, Adam. I think that adding that extra perspective in is going to be a delightful addition to to that series. One of the things I do love about both of these series is is what I call unique character types. And that is something I talk about with my students in my children's literature class. And we talk about, particularly with fantasy, where authors of fantasy will take traditional character types like the Jersey Devil or dragons or other types of things and then put their own twist on it to make it uniquely theirs and uniquely part of the story. So with both of these series... How much fun do you have taking these kind of traditional characters and putting these twists on them? It's a lot of fun. It's, yeah, the most fun. In fact, all of my books, um, pretty much, I take um, f- folklore, mythology, um, fairy tales, and I and I retell them. I um, Honestly, I don't often think of myself as a writer so much as a storyteller um, in the more traditional um, sense where um, – you know, I was a teacher for eight years and what I spent my time doing was telling my students stories. Um, and I would adapt the stories that I knew. I would tap, you know, the first story I ever told my group of first graders, I essentially plagiarized um, Disney's um, The Sword in the Stone, which is, of course, an adaptation of T.H. White's Sword in the Stone. But I hadn't, hadn't read T.H. White yet. So I was just retelling them the movie of The Sword in the Stone and they loved it. Um, so I love to take the stories, um, the folklore that I know um, and tell them the way that I tell things, which is usually with a wry sense of humor, um, a little bit of gross stuff. One of the best reviews I ever got, they called, they said, uh, Gidwitz is a master of effluvia. Um, so a master of bodily fluids. I was very proud of that. <laughs> so um, telling them in my, in my own way is, you know, the most fun thing uh, that I could imagine doing professionally. I think you do that so well that you you take these types of things that children really love. I mean, you know, whenever you can mention, you know, farting or underpants or anything like that, it's a good thing, particularly for like second grade students. And I love how you take that and you don't make it terribly gross or you know, terribly unpalatable, but make it just kind of a fun, humorous part. So as you think about these kinds of things, especially, are are you really writing for a certain kid or a certain audience? Or do you think of the reader as you're writing? You know, um, I do think of the reader. um, And I and I have to take exception. I don't think that underpants and fart jokes are good for second graders. They're good for everybody. Okay, yes, I will agree. They're good for everybody. (laughs) That's so I do true. have to say, though, unfortunately, I don't think I don't think. Oh, no, that's not true. I was going to say I don't think I mentioned underpants in any of my books, but that's not true. I have a big section about underpants in, in, the, in the Inquisitor's Tale. Um, and I'm not sure that there is any book in which I don't mention farting. Farting comes up in just about every one of my books. Um, but when I'm writing, I think about um, my former students. Um, I. Um, I was a teacher when I started teaching. I was a terrible teacher. Um, I was really bad. And the reason I was so bad was the first thing you have to do as a teacher before you can teach the kids anything is get the kids to shut their mouths for like one second. Um, and I could not figure out how to get my kids to, to shut their mouths and, and to sit down and listen to me. And the only way eventually that I figured it out was 
um, out of a a desperation day when I could not get my kids to be quiet. I sat down in the middle of the rug, and these four kids came up and sat next to me because in every classroom there's always like four nice kids who will help the teacher out no matter how badly things are going. So the four nice kids came down and sat next to me, and I said, you know, forget the rest of these kids. I'm just going to tell you guys a story. And as I told them that, actually King Arthur story, um, the other kids started to slowly sort of come over to the rug. And one by one, they sat down until eventually I had pretty much the whole class sitting around me listening to the story. Um, And it was really then that I discovered that um, telling kids stories was the only way I had of getting them to shut their mouths. And so when I write now, I just picture my former students. And I think, you know, sometimes there are different age students for the Inquisitor's Tale. I was thinking about my... um, my, both my fifth graders and my ninth graders. Um, I never caught, taught middle school because I don't have a death wish. But my, both my fifth graders and my ninth graders, whereas when I'm writing the Inquisitor's Tale, I'm thinking about my second graders and also my fifth graders. Will they be laughing on this page? Will they be excited on this page? Is there a moment when they'll be bored? Um, if there is, cut it out. So that's, that's really what I think about as I write. That's so wonderful to hear because that's one of the things I love about your work at Tale Dark and Grim and Unicorn Rescue Society is I think you hit that aspect of childhood and that aspect of the child reader in, in such a pitch perfect way. And I often see kids reading your books and laughing out loud or sharing pieces with their friends because they find it so humorous and delightful. And and that is really the the fundamental power of storytelling that you have captured not only as a teacher, but captured and and put on the page. Um, so as as we look forward to great things coming out of your pen and your computer, what what can we expect coming up in the future from you, Adam? Well, I'll be spending a lot of time um, over the next year or two um, finishing the Unicorn Rescue Society. So we know there will be um, at least seven books in the series. Um, it's something that I wanted. You know, when I was teaching, you would always have those kids who I only want to read a series and it has to be funny. Um, and you know, if there's a dragon in it, that's better. Um, and so I wanted to sort of fill that niche of kids who are beyond magic Treehouse but haven't yet gotten to Harry Potter. Um, but once the unicorn rescue society is done, um, I have sort of an exciting opportunity, uh, to think about a new project. Um, and I don't know what that project will be. I have, um, sort of three or four things, um, that are bopping around in my head and I could go with any one of them, but I haven't decided which one it's going to be yet. Well, we as fans will be looking forward to seeing what bops to the front of your head and comes out. And whatever it is, I can assure that it will be spectacular. Thank you so much for your great storytelling and your great writing. And I hope all of our listeners out there will run out and check out either A Tale Dark and Grim or The Unicorn Rescue Society. Thank you, Adam. Thank you so much, much, Rachel. Adam Gitowitz is an acclaimed author of many children's books, including A Tale Dark and Grim and The Inquisitor's Tale. Next, let's listen to librarians Fiong Yu, Petrina Garza, and Heather Novotny as they share some of their favorite books. A picture book I really like is... um... I think it's called something like Mornings with Grandpa, and you could use it in yoga story time. And um, the the granddaughter, it's by Sylvia Liu, and the granddaughter walks out of the house and sees Grandpa doing Tai Chi 
And so he teaches her Tai Chi and then she teaches them some yoga. And it's kind of how they come together because the, the granddaughter is like kind of a lovely little butterfly and she um, she's very exuberant in her um, physical movement that are depicted in the illustrations. And the grandfather is this beautiful kind of steady presence and they really both learn from each other. And I love that image of, um, you know, the generations kind of depending on each other. Um, there's one I read recently called Letty Out Loud where um, a young boy is... I guess his family, his parents are separating, so he's living with his grandparent. And so it kind of talks about, you know, how that's becoming more common. And I think there are more books that kind of present that, too. I love Last Stop on Market Street, and that is a really great one to read with older children also. I've read it to um, third and fourth graders. So in, in Last Stop on Market Street... Um, CJ and his grandma are riding the bus from church and he's like, Grandma, why do we got to ride the bus? Other people have cars. And then all these characters get on the bus and Grandma is very wise and she points out the virtues in the other characters that CJ doesn't immediately see. And then um, and then they have this nice moment where there's a man on the bus uh, playing guitar and they're kind of transported by the music on the, as they ride the bus. And at the end, you find that the de- their destination is uh, the soup kitchen where they're um, preparing meals for people who don't have food. I really liked Charlotte's Web growing up. You know, kind of classic, but I always loved animals. So any books with animals, like I wanted to be a veterinarian. So that, that was kind of the kick for a while. But I also really loved poetry. I just have to give a shout out to school librarians because I had an amazing school librarian in elementary school in Texas. And we just had so many options for books in the school library. And poetry, I remember, was, remember, was a big, big thing that I really liked from a young age. I loved all the Ramona and Beezus books, and so, I know, and it's so much fun, but it's fun to have my kids read some of those, too, because they're still relevant, and there's still a lot of joy in those books. I, too, I'm from, I was born in Oregon, and I, um, yeah, that's where Beverly Cleary, a lot of those books are set, and there was one time when we lived in Portland, and I would walk down Klickitat Street to go to the library, and then to come home with the with the Ramona book was great. My favorite uh, Beverly Cleary book is Emily's Runaway Imagination. And um, I love that book. Anything with humor really touched me as a child. Learning how to read is a critical part of growing up. The ability to read opens up worlds of possibilities to children that will continue to grow as they become adults. But not every child develops the ability to read easily. Today, I have in the studio Kathleen Brown from the University of Utah's Reading Clinic. Welcome, Kathleen. Great to be here. Thank you. All right, Kathleen, let's break some of this down. Reading and how do we help kids learn how to read? So let's say we've we've really established a foundation for our kids. We've done some basic textual understanding. They know their letter sounds. They know some of those kind of phonetical things like rhymes and that type Mm -hmm. of thing. So we have that foundation. But we're ready now to take that next step to where they can actually start decoding the words Mm -hmm. and they can recognize words and read them Mm -hmm. on their own. So how do we make that transition from this kind of foundational stuff where we know our letters and we're pretty good at all of that to, okay, now I can start reading cat instead of just saying it? Excellent. That's a great question. And and what I'm going to talk about here next is... A lot of this can actually happen at home as well. But for the most part, we're really diving now 
into sort of kindergarten, first grade area. But as I said, a lot of this can be strengthened at home. And if it's not being taught in the classroom, because, you know, we can't assume that every teacher in the primary grades knows really how to teach reading, unfortunately. Um, So a lot of this can happen at home. The first, the precursor to decoding, actually, and by decoding, I mean recognizing a word by looking at the symbols, the letters, and matching those to sound. You know, English being an alphabetic language, so we match symbols, letters, to sounds, speech sounds, phonemes. Before that ever happens, there's a precursor. A child needs to be able to match voice to print. And what that means is being able to look at a sentence of words and be able to speak the words from memory, because remember, they can't read yet. Speak the words from memory while pointing underneath and matching word for word what comes out of your mouth to the word on the page. For example, and the best place to do this is with rhymes or familiar text, predictable text. So let's say um, I've seen this. There's a there's an excellent film on this um, with um, patty cake, yeah. patty cake, patty cake, baker's man. In fact, we have this on our website. And our website is, for all the fans out there um, for the program here with Rachel, www.com. U-U-R-C, that's the acronym for United, United, University of Utah Reading Clinic, dot org, www.uurc.org. We've got all of this on our website, and you can actually watch this with Pat a Cake. It's my son, Ian, by the way. I just have oh, to tell you. Yeah, That's so wonderful. He's four now years we're, old. Now we're all going to have to go watch that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's four years old and cute as a button, but now he's 21. He wouldn't want me even talking about this. But <laughs> He's uh, probably still as cute as a button, though. And I just outed my age, but that's okay. <laughs> um, so, so you would model for a child, watch me, honey, and you would put your finger under the word pat, and then you would say, pat a cake, pat a cake, with your finger moving along, baker's man. Now, see... Children will look at bakers and because say bakers, bakers. That's how a, many that's a how word. many syllables has it got? Three. Say bakers, bakers. bakers. Clap Two. it out. Ready? Two. Clap it out. Bakers, bakers. bakers. See, yeah, Two even syllables, it's hard. Right? Even it's hard for me. So yeah. guess what? Even three-year-olds can hear syllable yeah. breaks. So a child, when a child is reading that sentence, they'll want to say bakers and go to the next word. Yeah, they don't because word breaks only come through writing. Speech is a stream, right? Like I'm talking to you right now. Speech is a stream. Where do the word breaks come? They they don't. They They don't. don't. There's no word breaks in speech. Only for written language, right? But the breaks do come at a syllable level. For example, if I said to you, do you speak Spanish? I don't. I okay, speak good. German. No, this but, is good. So no, this can... is good. Ready? <laughs> okay. See how, how many words do you think is in this sentence? Okay. Quere albóndigas? Five? And what a what a preschooler would do is go like this. Clap it with me. Quere albondigas. You can hear yes. the syllables yes. perfectly, oh, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Guess how many words in there? Two. Okay. There are two words there. But preschoolers can hear the syllable breaks, yeah. and so they'll want to point with syllables. So you say, watch this, hun. Pat a cake. Pat a cake. Bakers. And you leave your finger right there. You can have your child take a ride on your finger. Baker's man. And then they, you practice all kinds of fun little texts like that where they're pointing. You can do it with, with, with um, predictable texts like, for example, um, p- imagine a book where on every page is an animal. 
Okay. And the, the text underneath is just one line and it says, can you see the camel? And guess what's on that page? A picture of a... Yeah, a camel. Right. Yeah. The next page is, can you see a cat? Picture a of cat. a cat. Right. So if you model for the child how to point and read, well, they're just thrilled because when they do it, when they try it, yeah. there they go. Okay. Yeah. So, um, and then what can happen is they will have, then they will have um, the opportunity to use the most rudimentary of decoding yes. strategies. Okay. So picture this. A white fox on that on the page. The text below says, can you see a fox? Well, the child reads like this. Can you see a dog? Ah. Why do you think the child would say dog instead of fox, even though you've read it to them? If it's a picture of a white fox. Well, the connections that they're making with their own personal understanding of what that picture represents. Exactly. Yeah. And so you can say to them, oh, that's not a dog. Look here. And you point to the word fox and you say... What's the first sound? Mm. Mm-hmm. Because they know their letter sounds. They have that foundation. And so I'll yeah. say, Rachel, what's that first sound? It's an F. It's a F. What sound does it make? F. The word is fox. What's the word? Fox. Let's try that again. Start over. Can. Put your finger over here. Can. Can you see a fox? Perfect. Yeah. And then the next yeah. time. So do you see how that's, a, that's the most rudimentary of decoding strategies yeah. is to look at the first letter identify the sound, you're not ready. If you're yeah. five, four years old or three, you're not ready to blend yet. Oh, no. <laughs> but but I can yeah. certainly communicate to you that, hey, we got to look at the print here, honey. Yeah. And you can use that first sound and then you can jog it out of memory yeah. often. So that, that needs to happen before kids ever go to decoding. Should we move to decoding? Yeah. So again, that, that's a, a second level of foundation. Mm-hmm. And so once we've laid that foundation, where do we go from there? Well, along with that, frankly, if you think about the glue that holds written language together, mm-hmm. those would be high frequency words. Yes. Words like the. Let's generate some. The and. On. Uh, uh, and. In. In. Probably all the all the prepositions. Yeah. yeah of, those, right? those kinds of things. This, yeah. that, who, yeah. what, how. Yeah. And then you get into harder ones. Could, would, should. Yeah. Thought through, thought through, though. Yeah. Quite. Quiet. All um, the enough, ones. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So you can have, so what needs to happen is as you, as the child is learning how to, again, negotiate print physically. Yeah. How to use first sound to try and begin to decode. Kids need a lot of experience with those high-frequency words, Definitely. the easiest high-frequency yeah. words. You could call it a fry list, F-R-I, you can look them up, a dolch list. We have them on our website. There's a hundred words, really, that you have to, in order to be a successful reader, a child has to own those again. Um, a child has to own those like he or she owns her, his or her own name. Yeah. They have to be automatic so that they don't have to think about it. Because if you think about text... Those words hold text together, mm-hmm. and they become like little islands of safety yeah. that a child can jump. So, you know, if whether it's like on the road. So from yeah. if the phrase is on the road, if you can get on the and then use the er. Yeah. But if you're struggling with on and then you're struggling with big the. Problem. Yeah. Big problem. Big problem. Dead yeah. in the water. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So um, high frequency word automaticity is huge. What's difficult about them is they come from Old English. Mm-hmm. They're not phonetically regular Yeah. In, that, in the sense that even the word is, which we take for granted. T- put your hand up like this, okay? 
and you're going to tap. Let's tap the sounds. Tap our two fingers together. For every sound gets a tap. So say the word is. Is. Okay, let's tap it. Is. Well, what's the last sound in is? Z. What what letter do we use? S. S right. <laughs> yeah, so right yeah, there, yeah. right, right there. there, we've yeah. encountered the complexities of language. Exactly, <laughs> yeah, and yeah. and let's not even talk yeah. about the. Oh, that is well, and part of this too is the meaning of these words, right? Yeah. Because the really doesn't mm-hmm. have. A meaning mm-hmm. like road or foxwood. Yeah, they're kind of function words. I yeah, they're say. function words. And so I think understanding those function words also lays the foundation for grammatical sense and mm. other things that come later. Absolutely. Right? So yeah. not only are we laying a foundation for decoding, but mm-hmm. we're also laying a foundation for comprehension Absolutely. in many ways right. by doing this. Abs- you're totally yeah. right. So think about it. So first sound decoding, um, high frequency words. Lots and lots of work with them. And this does involve drill. Yeah. I will tell you this. Absolutely. And for some children, this is an important concept I think that your listeners will want to to think about. Individual differences rear their ugly heads here in the sense that for some children, they can look at a word one or two times. They own it. They just own it. Right. They're two standard deviations above the yeah. mean. They're, they're the, the kids who just they only need one or two repetitions yeah. Yeah. for a child who's learning disabled. You need upwards of towards sometimes close to a thousand repetitions to get something right. Or more. I've actually worked with some kids that have needed 10,000 repetitions. That's true. Yeah. And so this is where I think things become difficult for teachers and for parents is that some children don't bring with them um, the cognitive mechanisms to make it easy. And so it requires a lot of work. And um, those high-frequency words can be one of those sticking points where it gets very difficult. But I would say push on and push for automaticity because it's critical. By the time a child comes out of first grade, they need to own 75 to 100 high-frequency words in order to do second-grade material. That's just kind of a little metric for your listeners. Yeah. And there's where we need to get to. Thank you so much, Kathleen. This was fascinating. I really appreciate you breaking this down into, into easy chunks yeah. for, us, for us to start reading and understand about how kids are approaching reading. Blend it, then chunk it. Yes, blend, <laughs> chunk. We've got it. We're, we are more knowledgeable today than we were when we started. So Thank I, you, Rachel. I appreciate you sharing that knowledge. Thank we you. We appreciate being here. Kathleen Brown is the director of the University of Utah's Reading Clinic. Now, join me around the librarian's table as I talk with librarians from around Utah about children, books, and life at the library. I'm in the studio with Elizabeth Smart and Emily Dorowski, academic librarians here at BYU. All right, we are all academic librarians, proud card-carrying academic librarians. (laughs) But I think a lot of people don't understand that there are a lot of different kinds of librarians, right? Um, Most people may encounter a public librarian or a school librarian in one of those contexts, but we are specifically academic librarians. So let's talk a little bit about what that means. What, What is an academic librarian and how is it different maybe than some of those other kinds of librarian roles? So who are we? I think one one maybe um, difference or uh, to start with is just that we work with a, a specific group of people. We work with university or college students and and faculty and sort of we our main audience or, or patron group of patrons is our campus community. Yeah, and that's different because other librarians would have different patron communities. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah, 
And I think it's important to realize even within an academic library, there's different kinds of librarians yes. within that organization. Um, the three of us are subject librarians, which means we have a background in library science, but we also have some sort of background in a specific discipline. And then we work with students and faculty within that discipline. They're kind of our main patron group, I guess you would say. But then there's catalogers or special collections librarians. Yeah, so our particular role, we specialize more in helping people find information within the context of our own disciplines. So what are some, explain some of the things we do. What are, what are some of our daily tasks within that, within that specific role? Uh, a lot of our work starts with collections, uh, making sure that we have, whether they're the books or the journals or the films that our particular discipline needs to either for research or for the classes that are taught on campus. So collection development and collection management is a big part of what we do. And then we use that as a basis for um, reference or research consultations. When we have students come to, into our office and they're working on a paper for a class and they're having a hard time finding the best sources or enough sources for their paper, we can help them search the collections to find those materials. Yeah. And for me, that's the best piece of advice any parent or concerned adult can give to your college student. If they're struggling, send them to the library. That's <laughs> right. Your, your, your camp, campus university or your campus or university will have a librarian. So send them there. Yes. <laughs> Even yeah. send them their freshman year. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Get them used to it. <laughs> and I think that's one of the most rewarding parts of our job is having a student come in. Maybe they're stressed. Or maybe they just have a really great idea. But either way, for you to be able to either facilitate that idea and help them feel like they can like, run with it or helping allevi- alleviate stress by giving them some skills and tips, um, that's really rewarding. Yeah. I mean, I, I see that every day when I have students come in. It really That is the most one of the most rewarding parts of, of our jobs. I, I love it when, you know, they come in and they're almost in tears, but by the time they leave, you know, they're like, yes, I can do this. <laughs> it's, it's like, yeah, they've, they've got this. What are some of the other things? Yeah. Oh, I was just going to say on top of individual consultations, we also have um, instructors, faculty who will bring their whole class into the library, usually in a classroom where everyone has a computer. And then we do demoing of using databases and trying to teach them information literacy skills. Um, so that's a big part of our job. And and then we do engage in our own research. And we also do what's called citizenship, which is serving on committees within the library, within state or national committees and just trying to like you know work on the profession or work on the organization in which we work in and help it function yeah we have complex jobs <laughs> to say the least but talk a little bit about how you got to this place i know all three of us kind of became librarians from in a slightly different pathway which i think is really interesting to see what this kind of career path might look like cuz it is a varied career path i mean i don't think many people are born knowing they want to be librarians. There's a few people in this world, but not many. So talk about how, how did you get here? Yeah, mine was a winding path. Um, I studied humanities as an undergraduate and then folklore as a graduate student and had worked right out of grad school in a variety of 
um, education-focused institutions like the Utah Education Network or uh, within public television. And and in those fields, I kind of worked um, within those same areas that I had studied, humanities and and to an extent folklore. Um, And I had really enjoyed working for those educational organizations or nonprofit groups. And then... um, uh, a few years into my uh, professional life, I thought, oh, I wonder if there is – I had always been interested in supporting, being part of the kind of education network, but in a supporting role. I, I really um, had had more interest maybe behind the scenes than in, in front of the classroom. And um, so I did some thinking and, and went to library school. And, um, and then while I was in library school um, – was able to see that academic librarianship might be a, a um, something that made sense for me with my background. Mm-hmm. And and then for the last several years, um, since finishing library school, it's been great to take all those previous educational and work experiences, again, in humanities, um, folklore, American studies, and then working in, say, the, the public humanities that I had been done, and now to kind of fold that all into my work as a humanities librarian. I love it. Yeah, so mine is a different experience. I My bachelor's degree is in psychology, and I decided to go on for a master's and PhD in cognitive psychology, which is um, learning to research and answer questions related to memory, attention, just kind of higher-level cognitive processes is what we call it. Um, most people think psychologists do clinical work or therapy, and I have actually no training in that. <laughs> Um, and then after that, out of grad school, my husband and I went to BYU-Idaho and taught as visiting faculty there for a couple of years. And as we were coming out of that, we were looking for tenure-track faculty positions. And I happened to see this posting um, at BYU for a psychology librarian where they didn't require you to have the library background to begin with. And I thought, let's try this. Let's see if um, this will fit for me. And so I interviewed, and I thought the interview went really well. I mean, I prepped a lot. I tried to learn a lot about libraries, academic libraries, because I, even though I'd studied a lot in a <laughs> university library, <laughs> used I, them. <laughs> I didn't really know what it was all about. Um, but it's been a really great fit for me. I I do like the supporting role. I like helping students. I miss seeing the semester-long growth that I had when I taught semester-long courses, but um, there's just a lot about this job that fits me and my personality well, and and I still get to use this background in psychology. Yeah. I think you make some really important points, first being that I think for most librarians, particularly academic librarians, our background is just really eclectic. We come from a lot of different places, and I think that's what makes us good academic librarians is because we have all these differing backgrounds and experiences, and then we come to libraries. And then the other thing that I think a lot of people don't realize is there is education that goes along with this, right? For most of us, um, you, you can't become a librarian unless you have a master's degree in library science. And so some of us have come to the profession with it. Others, like Emily, get it while while they're learning. Right. Right? I, I didn't yeah. say that as yeah. the library um, required that 
I complete the Master's of Library Science within the first um, three or so years of my being employed. So I I do now have that credential. So, you know, that's always something that I think a lot of people, when I talk to them about my job, is like, I didn't know you had to have a master's degree to do your job. And I'm like, yeah, you have to have a master's degree to do your job. But you also have to have this, you know, this other kind of eclectic experience. So, So for me, if you love learning, if you love information, you'd make a good librarian. So that kind of sums it all up. Well, thank you, ladies, for expressing your experiences and helping us to understand what it means to be an academic librarian. All right. Thanks for having us. I'd like to thank Elizabeth and Emily for joining me around the librarian's table. We've had a great show today. We talked with Julia Ashworth about theater for young audiences. Then we chatted with Adam Gitowitz about his book series, A Tale Dark and Grim. Our last interview was with Kathleen Brown, and we discussed word recognition instruction. If you missed any of today's show, or if you want to listen to it again, you can find it on the BYU Radio app or at byuradio.org, as well as on most podcast apps and websites. If you want to know more about what we do here at Worlds Awaiting, feel free to follow our Instagram at Worlds Awaiting. This has been a production of BYU Radio. Our producer is Cole Wissinger, our student production assistant is Sarah Byington, and our technical advisor is Braden Flint. I'm Rachel Wadham, looking forward to the worlds that are waiting next week. Thank you for exploring with us. Mm-hmm.